everyone. Uh, I'm Jim Hansen, and I'm on the Golf Week Raider panel advisory board, and this is my fourth podcast, and uh, I'm very happy today because I have another fellow author uh, talking to me today, and he's talking to, to us all from St. Andrews in, in Scotland, so that's an, an especially nice thing. Uh, my guest today is Roger McStravick. Uh, and I want to begin by first congratulating Mr. McStravick for his receiving this year's Herbert Warren Wind Award, uh, which is given by the United States Golf Association annually for the very best book in golf uh, in golf for that year. Uh, I was fortunate enough to win that award myself once, uh, and I know how good I felt about it, how honored I was by it, and I'm sure Roger feels the same way. So, Roger... Welcome to the podcast, and uh, and we're so happy to be in touch with St. Andrews in any way we can be. <laughs> no, it's great to be here. It's great to be here. Okay, let me let me ask first. Uh, this, I mean, clearly, I know, and I think a lot of the listeners will know that this is not your first book. You've done uh, you've done a, a other books, and they they do they all deal with the history of St. Andrews. Um. It, that is a, a sort of passion for me. Tom Morris and Andrews, anything sort of 19th century is just, it is an absolute passion for me. And, and I don't know why, and I don't know where it's came from, uh, where it's come from. But um, once I started looking into it, into Tom Morris in particular, I just I just couldn't get enough of it, really. So it is, it is my sixth book, and... Um, uh, they aren't all about St. Andrews, uh, but they will be mentioning St. Andrews somewhere in the book. <laughs> so, uh, um, so uh, yeah, no, it's just a, an absolute passion of mine. Um, did you grow up in St. Andrews? I, I didn't, actually. I'm, I'm Northern Irish. So I grew up in Northern Ireland in the 1980s, which was interesting, uh, to say the least. My my golf club was blown up twice um someone in the group in front of me when we were playing the ninth hole got shot in the head by a sniper i mean um looking back on it now um it's quite shocking but growing up you know as a teenager you didn't really it was just the normal thing um, Let me stop you there, the Roger, because you know we might have some some awfully young uh, people listening in, and fortunately, the troubles, as they were called in Northern Ireland, uh, I, mean, I guess they've they've ended. I mean, not that all issues are maybe over, but maybe just briefly tell you know, tell people who don't know that history, which is so critical history to certainly to you and your communities and and to the UK generally explain what you what this was really all about and and how what kind of experience it was for golf I mean how did golf play into it at all I mean other than having these experiences that were so unfortunate yeah so um if you go right back to basics you had one side wanted to be a united Ireland and one sided one to the Northern Ireland to be part of the, the UK. Um, but, and so that's what they were constantly, constantly fighting about. And then peace came and it's been fantastic. But I have to say, even during all those troubles, um, at the golf club itself, and it's a really Lurgan golf club, was, I mean, which is where I was, a, I can remember when I was 11 years old. And, um, but it was fantastic because golf was a religion. Nobody cared about religion um in terms of trying to push their opinions down other people's throats they, they were just concerned about what did you shoot you know and um uh, which is an unfortunate choice of words <laughs> in northern Ireland. but it was it was definitely what's your score was you know and um uh, so so as an 11 year old growing up my best friends were catholics and protestants so and and my cousins were both Catholics and Protestants because I came from a mixed family. So it was just it was fantastic, and people were so passionate about golf. And I see real parallels between Lurgan and St Andrews. You know, I'm a member of the St Andrews Golf Club, and again, that's a real players' club. And by that, I mean, you know, there's several hundred people who are less than five handicap. You know, um, and uh, 
Um, and that, that really was the thing that concerned us most, really, you know, and it was such a healthy, wonderful, nurturing environment. Um, um, and I, I, and I, I have thanked in my books, and there's always a forward, and there'll always be a mention of, of Lurgan Golf Club, because I genuinely wouldn't be here today if it wasn't for the people who helped me, supported me, advised me as a kid growing up through the troubles and take me under their wing and helping me, you know. Um, so, yeah, so I, I owe so much to the people back then. Really? Let me interject a question that I hadn't thought about asking you, but this is so, I mean, it's relevant, I think, to the Raiders. I mean, a lot of our golf course Raiders have a lot of international travel experience. They've been all over the world to play. Uh, and I've not been all over the world, but I've been, I've been several places and I've certainly been to the UK and Ireland to play. Um, how, when, when Ireland, when Northern Ireland was having the troubles, uh, and I guess all Ireland was involved, um, that surely affected what kind of travel travel and tourism there was to Northern Ireland for golf, I would suppose. I remember the first time I traveled to, to Northern Ireland, there was a conference that my good friend recently passed away, John Hanna, uh, who belonged at Malone in, in, in Belfast. Uh, he had a conference that was put together um, and I, that's the first time I went to Northern Ireland, and I think it was in the late 80s, maybe, something like the late 1980s. And I remember flying, you know, getting on the plane at uh, at uh, Heathrow, I think, flying to Belfast and sitting there. And as an American, you know, I knew as a historian and I, I knew some issues related to the troubles, but I, I almost felt like I was flying into Beirut or something. I mean, it, it you know, I wasn't sure what to expect landing in Belfast yeah. because Belfast to Americans just meant the troubles. Um, so I assume that a lot of golfers, not just American golfers, but international golfers did not visit Northern Ireland because they were concerned about it. But, but since the troubles have ended, then it's, it's opened up and become, you know, a very popular destination internationally. Am I right in assessing it this way or not? Yeah, absolutely. And and for the record, John Hanna was one of the nicest people on the planet, you know, and uh, I just uh, devastated when he when he passed, you know, a few years ago. Um, and Malone Golf Club as well is just one of the most beautiful courses in Northern Ireland, you know, just in Belfast there. I played most of my golf either at Malone, Royal County Down or Lurgan. Um, but yeah, no, absolutely, because I used to... Uh, uh, work as the sort of golf PR person for Visit Scotland. That was my job, my last sort of last but one serious job. Um, and and we would go back to we would do um, uh, we would do expos and, and big big uh, tourist events. And you know, Visit Scotland, we would have the the grants. Um, staged area you know and videos and loads of giveaways and stuff but the northern irish version of that was a girl sitting on a chair by herself and unless you you knew you know so well, what are you here for and she says well i'm here to cover golf tourism it's like are you kidding me well is, is this is what they're doing for northern ireland you know um, and she didn't play golf and she didn't do anything really much about golf. It's like my heart was breaking, really. Um, so I think it definitely did. I think, you know, you know, no one would choose to go to Iraq to play a game of golf right now. You know, it's just like it, it has a few negatives. You know? So um, and it's the same for Northern Ireland. You know, it was back then. But now with the peace and the peace is just brilliance you know people are just getting on and living the way we were doing in the golf club has sort of filtered out and people are just getting on with life you know and um, it's, it's just wonderful because northern ireland has so many amazing amazing courses you know and uh, yeah like I mean, america's now i mean i maybe just say a little bit more about that i mean everybody that's familiar with pays much attention to golf or and loves golf knows royal county down knows royal port rush but there's a lot more 
to offer in Northern Ireland than just those two world famous golf courses. I mean, I, I can think of another half a dozen at least that are worth a trip over, even if you don't get on Royal Connie Down or Royal Portrush. So, which, which, in your opinion, which are the top courses uh, besides Royal County Down and Royal Portrush? Interesting. It depends what you're what you're looking for. You know, if if you're just looking for links golf, then um, I, I love Pat Ruddy's work at the European. You know, I, I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful design. Um, and then Parklands, you can't. I honestly, I, I, I said I played most of my golf at Lurgan, Malone, or Royal County Down. And Malone, it just I, I loved it because it was growing up in Northern Ireland. Then it seemed like this is what Augusta would mm. be like. You know, because it's such a beautiful setting, a beautiful clubhouse, you know, and then the par three over over the water, you know, so just glorious. And then the fastest greens probably in Northern Ireland at that time. So, um, right. so yeah, so that, but there is an absolute uh, plethora of courses um, within like an hour or so or Belfast, you know, if you go in either direction, you're going to find something amazing. Um, so I, I, I'd recommend it. And also, you know, there's obviously Bushmills, which will um, with, with either cure you <laughs> um, for the morning after or, um, or give you the pain from the night before. And a new course, excuse me, make, yeah, make sure. Uh, and a new course is being built up near Bushmills, isn't there? I mean, didn't I read that something up on the northern coast is being built now? Um, sorry, I'm not sure. Okay. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, let's get let's get to the to the real meat of of, sure, the, yeah. of the discussion. Tell us about your prize winning book. Tell us how you came to. It's such an interesting story. Tell us how you came to this particular topic. How it came in some ways out of your out of earlier research you had done, but also almost. I mean, a lot of great research findings come sort of serendipitously. And I think, I'm not sure if that's the word you would use in this particular case, but it's it's a brilliant book from an unexpected place in a way. Uh, so tell us the story of how it got developed. Yeah, I, I was researching uh, footsteps and Andrews and the footsteps of Tom Morris about, you know, six years ago. And um, Katrina uh, at the... University of St Andrews Special Collections Department said we we have a, a book on St Andrews links. Nobody's really sure what's inside it. Would you like to take a look? Because she, she knew roughly what I was doing, and I said, "Oh yeah, of course." And he opened up this dusty old box, and I couldn't believe it. What I was reading, it was lots of legal statements, you know, recognition statements is what they're called, but. It was just statement after statement of like Tom Morris, Jamie Anderson, Bob Kirk, and John White Melville. And it was all the great and good of the 19th century St. Andrews in their own words, talking about uh, what uh, their earliest memories of the links was, the, the development of the links, and what they thought about, uh, which was the legal case that they were providing statements for. And it was just a treasure trove of of information. And I thought, I'm going to come back and write the book on this called The Road War Statements. Because, and then try to just, that would be it, you know. But of course, with, uh, you know, you start to begin to look at it and suddenly it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. You know, I couldn't talk about why the road war was important without mentioning the 1820 viewing uh, of the land where the original... 22 whole layout went across um so yeah so it just it was just um grew legs and grew legs but effectively the book is about um the golf course the st andrews golf course used to go right to the door of the tom morris shop and the people who built their houses facing the links wanted to put a road um down the side of the links and one man who was relatively new to St Andrews, and he was on the town council, was horrified that they would dare to put a road on this ancient links. You know, that just seemed like sullying it. You know, how, how dare you? You know, and um, so, um, so the town council voted and they wanted to give them permission to build their own road. So he took, he took the town council to court 
and it went all the way to the House of Lords. Um, but the thing that I love about the book is the statements, but then I found uh, in court, Tom Morris being cross-examined in court, you know, Jimmy Anderson being, and it was just, so I loved it. I honestly, I for all the books that, that I've done, I think there's been number six, I find it so hard to leave. I just, I was so happy doing all the research um, and I would still be researching it now and, you know, you know, um, but they give so much brilliant information and Tom Marshall's quite a few mysteries and a few, he fills in a few gaps about his life. Um, just, just, just wonderful to hear the people themselves speaking is just fantastic. You know, it's not somebody saying, oh, Tom Morris was an apprentice who worked for Alan Robertson and he started when he was 13. It's actually much, much more than that. You know, this is him in his own words talking about what it was like working for Alan Robertson. You know, it was truly a, a, a special find and um, and I love it. I, I, you know, the sense of humour and the, the human side of Tom Marsh's character really comes out in the cross-examination, you know, because he's actually joking in court, you know. Um, so, because uh, he's sometimes portrayed as quite a dark, serious man, and yet here he is having a bit of a joke uh, in court. So, um, yeah, I, wonderful. I, I just, I just loved it, you know, and, and I'm so happy that um, that that it uh, other people like the research too. I was trying not to get too much in the way with the book, just let the statements speak for themselves, but also point out why it's historically important what they're saying. And I'm just honestly so delighted when it won the the Herbert Warren win for the second time. Was... That's right, for the second time. I, I remember <laughs> the first time. Well, um, old Tom Morris, one of the greatest figures in golf history, an iconic figure, and of course, young Tom. I mean, both of those yeah. stories are so vital to, to understanding the traditions and history of the game. What for, but I wanted you to say some things about young Tom in, in a minute, but you've, you, you wrote a, a, a book, you know, um, in the footsteps of old Tom Morris. And tell I want the readers that haven't, don't know that book, need to know a little bit about what that book was. And also, Tell us some things. I mean, even I've read quite a bit about old Tom Morris and I've seen the actor who plays old Tom Morris or used to play when you go to visit St. Andrews and yeah, you know, have a joy there. Yeah. And he does a great job, but what, for people that really don't know much about old Tom Morris, um, I think there are probably a lot of golfers worldwide that have heard the name and know something about it, but don't really know the person, you know, the person, I mean, you've walked in his footsteps, you've walked with him. You've probably had, conversations with them. I mean, uh, as historians sometimes do with the people that they write about. So tell us about that earlier book and also tell us what is it about the old Tom that you think needs to be remembered that we maybe don't, that we don't remember as well as we should. So, so the book itself is, so uh, St. Andrews in the footsteps of old Tom Morris, and it's basically a guide to St. Andrews, but it's also a guide to the life of Tom Morris because almost in every street, there's either something that he's been involved with, or there's somebody who was involved with the links. You know, so on every street in St. Andrews, in the center of St. Andrews, there, there's some connection, you know? And I just, I thought it was a really interesting way to, to tell, to, to sort of, to do two things at once, to do a beautiful, because I've had a lot of really rare photographs that hadn't been seen before of, of St. Andrews and the links. And I wanted to show those in quite a big format as well. So it's a nice sort of coffee table look about it. Um, um, but also to tell Tom's life as well in a sort of different different way of, of doing a sort of biography. So it was it was um it was yeah, it was it was just a joy to to research and and to find out more about Tom Morris and discover where his first shop was and stuff. You know, it was just honestly I I the, the the 19th century just resonates with me you know my next book is going to be on alan robertson i'm sure we'll chat about it later but um still the 19th century <laughs> you know i was asked what's my favorite book and i said bar colossus uh anything from the 19th century you know what in, in what ways does old tom best capture 
ni- the 19th century flavor and the and this and sort of the essence of what the 19th century was as you understand it. Yeah, well, Tom, Tom Morris was uh, as the best golfer in the world, you know, and that's not being flowery, that's not exaggerating. He was, you know, the first. 10 opens, I think he won four and Willie Park won four. You know, it was just, um, he was the best golfer in the world. He's still the oldest winner of the Open. He's still the largest margin of victory for the Open. Um, so he was a, a fantastic player. And that's the, the sort of Tom that resonates with me. Um, but he, he was the best player at the time when golf was exploding. You know, it was, it was cheaper to play. Um, like it was always been free in Scotland, and that's an important thing. Golf's never been, you know, um, a sort of uh, elite sport in Scotland. Anybody could play. You know, the street urchin with no, no shoes on his feet in the 19th century played golf, you know. Um, so, and so, but he was the king of golf at the time when it was exploding. So, and so he was in all the press and all the papers. You know, I, I've seen his scrapbook and, you know, and all the clippings. Um, so he was the one, he was the savvy of his era that captured the imagination. Um, um, and then into his later life, he was the one designing the courses where he designed over a hundred courses. And he set that, that model where you become a professional golfer. And then, um, in later years, then you make golf courses, you know? So, um, he touched almost every aspect of the game, um, from playing right through to making of the golf courses. Did he rep- he how, did he, how did he represent 19th century values in terms of the kind of human being he was, the kind of person he was? I mean, did he have, I mean, would he, would he, um, what would disappoint him about the 20th century, for example? I mean, in, in the sense of how he was so imbo- much an embodiment of the 19th century. I, yeah, but see, that's a really interesting question because I don't think he would be overly disappointed because he was always, you know, he was for ladies golf in 1867 when the, the ladies golf club, he, uh, you know, the Himalayas and St. Andrews, he, he set it out. You know, he was pro um, ladies playing golf when when that was actually not a quite um, the done thing, you know. Um, so I, I, and I, you know, he played with the goodie ball, you know, uh, when it first came out. And that obviously caused problems with him and Alan Robertson, um, his employer. Um, who had a, um, a several hundred years of history in the family of making feathery balls. So I, I, it was always sort of, I, well, my impression is, is that, that he always was looking to what's good for the game, what's going to get more people playing, what's going to get more participation in the sport, you know. Um, so in that way, he was sort of at odds with Victorian values, you know, um, mm-hmm. And he was able to to cross social divides. You know, he could he could speak to the lords and, and the gentlemen of the the RNA as much as he could speak to the the kid with no shoes. You know, he wants to caddy. You know, um, so yeah. So I, I think um, he's a bit of a sort of um, you know futurist. You know, for want of a better word, but he, he was just um, there's there's no point. Um, in his life where he's been against progress. And and that's what I find quite exciting about him. So I, I genuinely don't think, I think he would think, um, I'm sorry, I was, I'm self-editing here, sorry. Sure. Um, I think, right, okay, I'll go for it. I think if he saw um, DeChambeau, he would, he would have a little titter. Um, because there's always somebody who's had a three putt and they've gone to the tee and tried to knock the skull off the ball, you know, just like it as hard as they possibly could. But they haven't done that on every tee, you know, even when they've had, you know, hold a 30 footer, you know. Um, but I think he'd be amused by it. Um, but I, but I, I, don't, I don't get the sense that he's a sort of Victorian person, you know, Wagging, wagging a finger. I, I really think he would enjoy that, you know, um, you know, because in his gener- in his era it was Freddie Tate, who was who was a uh, uh, hit the ball very hard, but then 
started playing within himself and that's when he started winning sort of amateur championships and stuff so um i i, th I think he would love it I think he would love it, you know. Um, well, let, let's 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 move then to his son, young Tom. Uh, I'm I'm quite charmed by what I've learned about how this. When you first learned uh, about how the death of Tom of young Tom happened, the tragedy of that. For those who don't know the story, and I assume there are, you know, there are lots of golfers, unfortunately, worldwide who love to play golf but don't pay as much don't don't pay much attention to the history of the game which is really too bad because it's a game that you can uh, you you love even more when you know the history tell tell us briefly about the life and death of young tom and how that affected you and motivated you to to do that your passion for golf increased even more yeah no absolutely um and tommy tommy was Tiger Woods. Tommy was, you know, if Tom was the best player in the world, Tom, Tommy, Tommy was another level altogether. You know, you know, every generation has its sort of maverick who is just head and shoulders above everyone else. You know, Tiger was definitely that. You know, racked up fourteen majors in a heartbeat. You know, it feels like. Um, and Tommy, Tommy was that. He won the Open three times as a teenager. Um. And then uh, they didn't have, because he won the champion's belt, so they didn't have a trophy that didn't have a tournament that year. But the year afterwards, he won that as well. So effectively, he won it four times in a row. Um, so he was, he was, you know, uh, unbelievable. Um, started getting appearance money, started touring with TV Strath. Um, um, but then his wife uh in september um was was pregnant and there was a match lined up between tom morris and tommy morris and the parks uh willie park and mungo park at north berwick and tommy was convinced to go his wife you know although heavily pregnant you know would be fine um they play the match in North Berwick and uh, the Morrises win. Close match, but the Morrises win. And um, But a telegram comes saying, Tommy, come home. Things are, are a bit difficult. So uh, one of the people who were there said they could use his boat because it would be much faster to go from North Berwick to St Andrews via boat than any other way. Um, and as the boat is pulling away from the shore, um, and that could have been called back, but what the newspaper said, another telegram came through to say that his wife had died and a child was stillborn. Um, but the friends who were there watching the match said, no, he'll find out soon enough. Um, and so Tommy you know, arrived in St Andrews, ran down North Street to one Albany place, and the house is still there today. And Reverend Boyd said on the door, I'm, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry for your loss. And he said, no, 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 it's not true. Ran upstairs, and there his wife was dead. Um, and his, and as I said, the baby was stillborn. Um, and after that, you know, for a few months, Tommy was inconsolable. Um, didn't want to play any golf, didn't want to do anything, took to drinking, which was very unlike Tommy. But um, uh, in December, early December, he was convinced to play. And what year was that, Roger? Um, 1875. Um, and he was convinced to play a match against Arthur Molesworth. Um, and um, they played the, played the game. There was snow and, you know, they, the friends said to Molesworth, you know, you really should, we should cancel this match because no point, you know, people had, they had to go out and brush the snow off the greens and stuff. Molesworth saw this as a weakness. So, you know, he would, he would, 
he had Tommy, you know, Tommy was afraid, but he certainly wasn't afraid. And Tommy uh, won the match. Um, but um, he had a chill about him. Now, I, I do want to um, state something that, that that's not a fact, you know, anything. I don't want any sort of romantic thing about it. Um, but uh, so on, on Christmas Eve, he had moved, by that time, he had moved into the house with his mum and dad uh, at six Pilmore Links. And he said goodnight to his mum and dad and went to bed. And um, on Christmas morning next day, there was no sign from his room. And Tom went up the stairs and Tommy was there, um, dead. Uh, and basically he had a, a burst aneurysm in the lungs. So effectively he bled to death in his sleep. Um, so yeah, so it, it's um, a powerful story. If you imagine, you know, Tiger, at the height of his fame, dying in his sleep shortly, you know, a few months after, you know, his wife had died. Um, that's how shocking it was to, to Victorians, you know, and that's why sort of 60 clubs or so, <clears throat> excuse me, clubbed together for this, the statue of Tommy, you know, which is there at the graveside today. And there's a lovely photograph of Tom and Tommy. Um, and if you see that photograph and you see the statue, you'll see that they've taken Tommy's likeness exactly as he's posing, and that's what they used to make the statue. How did old Tom, I mean, like, we know this had to be a, just a terrible loss for the Tom, old Tom and his wife, but yeah. what, do you, what, do you, what do you say about how it impacted the rest of his life? How much longer did, he, did old Tom live, and how, how well was he able to go on? Um, he, I, th I think, he, I think it was fair to say that that he was completely broken, and like Tom said, uh, that he could always get the better of Alan Robertson on the course, you know. And Alan, Alan Robertson was the champion golfer, so he could always beat Alan, but he could never ever beat Tommy, you know. Um, and I think he was absolutely crestfallen, and um, like for example. Tommy's locker um, uh, was still unopened in, in 1899. It was the first time it was opened up. And I saw a photograph of that recently. And all the clubs are there. And Tommy's coat that he must have worn when he's playing is there. Um, and he only had seven clubs, you know. And there's obviously no bag, there's no such thing. Just clubs that would go under an arm, loose clubs. Um, but... Tom and himself, you know, lasted for, what, 30 more years and built golf courses and became this grand old man of golf, you know, and um, I think he, he did Tommy Pride, you know, he, he really did. Um, um, again, I keep coming back to he was at the right place at the right time in terms of whereas Musselburgh sort of its fortunes waned, St. Andrews just got bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and it's just sheer luck that Tom was the man at the time, you know, so he had a, a fantastic life, you know, and, and, um, you know, he, he died, um, with, uh, when he died, he, you know, he had the equivalent of around about 2 million in his bank account, you know, so in, in modern day money, you know, so he, he had a fantastic life from somebody who was the son of a weaver, you know, um, um, he, he had a fantastic rich life, you know, and rich of memories, you know, you know, lots of highs, but obviously lots of painful lows. Well, well, the parallel that you bring up between young Tom and Tiger is very interesting and, and insightful. And I think, you know, fortunately, Tiger's accidents have not caused him his death. But I think what you say in terms of the impact on 19th century golfing and you know british society generally in terms of this tragic young death of of young tom and his and his wife and a stillborn baby i mean there there 
and the parallels are, are different, but still, I mean, the impact that Tiger's incidents, and especially this recent accident that nearly killed him, I mean, it. we can sense, I mean, for people that don't, might not understand the impact of young Tom's death on the world and of golf, we know what happened. I mean, if Tiger had died, it would have, I mean, it was already a huge story. It was on the international news and, and was on you know, 24 seven for a few days anyway. Um, so yeah, that's, a. um, let me ask in terms of, um, you know, one would think after all the centuries of golf and golf history and the focus on golf history in terms of St. Andrews, one would think that virtually all the stories have been told by now, but your career, <laughs> your books, prove that that is not true, that there's untapped material, there are untold stories. And certainly your most recent book on the, on the, the road over the, the war over the road about the, and I mean, they're just a fascinating story that got ramifies in all kinds of ways that are beyond golf. I want to talk about, you know, what it, what you learned, what that this research told you about the actual routing of the course uh, and impact on the first hole in particular. Um, but I mean, this, this St. Andrews and the archival materials that are available at St. Andrews, are there still lots more stories to tell? There are, there are, you know, because, you know, it, it is the home of golf, but it's also like the, <clears throat> for me, it's like the home of golf research because there's the, the RNA collection is incredible. And they're very kind with it as well, you know, very generous with the golf museum and letting you go in and look at the archives and stuff. They are fantastic. And um, there's also the university because lots of people just donate their archives to the university and you can go online, you know, um, and just look at the university, look at the, the photograph collection, search for something and you can find it, you know, um, as well as manuscripts and stuff <clears throat> like um um, my latest thing that I found, um, I found 77 pages of statements in 1805 by the golfers. And um, I'm sort of salivating. I, I really want to get there and, and analyze it, but everything's closed because of COVID. But but these are going to be statements from Tom's father, Tom Morris's father and his grandfather, Alan Robertson's grandfather as well, talking about the links, the earliest memories of the links. So, you know, I, I think um, there's, there's, there is so much to find. There's a, there's a lot of um, uh, photocopying going on. You know, lots of things are repeated, but actually getting back to the, the primary sources, you know, the original material were it's statements by, you know, Alan Robertson's grandfather talking about the links you know, that's what I find really precious, you know, um, really unique. Um, and your uh, listeners may not um, know this, but the old course used to be 22 holes. Um, so lots of these people who have made these statements will know about the real location of uh, the final green, um, the actual position of those extra holes, you know. So um, so I, I just find it fascinating. I find the people side of it fascinating. Um, the one thing I haven't done is uh, study the course um, as much as I have studied the people. I find the people fascinating. Um, you know, I, I love, love hearing about the person who remembers Granny Clark's wine being built, you know, or remembers the Swilkin Burn being set out, or was the person who um, took the rubbish from the town of St Andrews, dumped it on the beach and levelled it off and effectively created the first hole um, as a way of protecting the course. All they were trying to do was protect the course from the tidal erosion, but they effectively created what we know now as the first hole. So I love it. I, I, I just, you know, I, I, I love the story of the people and I love hearing it in their own words. You know, it's interesting. This is kind of tooting our both of our horns a, a little louder. But, you know, if you look at, at some of the recent recipients of the Herbert Warren Wind Award in terms of your two wins and my win over the uh, Robert Trent Jones biography, I mean, it, it seems like the books that focus on 
the personalities and on the people, you know, it, it's that those are somewhat exceptional books in golf. I mean, not that there aren't books like that and some of the very, very good ones. Some of the stuff Kurt Sampson has done in the United States, for example. Um, but uh, I think, yeah, I think there's something to be said there that, that, that the, the stories of the human, the human side of the golf story is always the one that I think is going to be the most, that it's going to touch us the most in terms of our, of our minds and our hearts. Um, and I, I think, you know, there, it's so great. You brought these characters to life, you know, in ways that they, they weren't completely alive before. Um, are the, but you said you were going to, you're doing Alan McDonald next. Are uh, there, Alan Robertson? Alan Robertson, excuse me. Alan Robertson. Do you want to set it up uh, again? Yeah. Uh, and so what, what is it that uh, um, most interests you about him in contrast to the Morrises? Um, this is a tricky one for me because I've, um, and I'll be honest now, um, never wholly been interested in Alan Robertson. And I know that sounds daft. Um, you know, I'm passionate about so much about St. Andrews. But I always saw him as a bit of a cad, you know. Um, you know, you constantly read about his pokey sense of humour, you know, which you know, and he was he was he was he was very much into gamesmanship. So um, the story behind the book, um, there was a lovely guy called Bill Williams, and he came to St Andrews about three years ago, and I've been in touch, and he was passionate, and he wrote a book about Varden. And and he said he wanted to do this in Alan Robertson and you know and I was sent go for it do it you know absolutely you know whatever you need whatever I can do open doors for you I will do I will try to make this happen for you. Um, but um, he said he sent me an email. He's supposed to come over in June and sent me an email saying he wasn't feeling so well. And um, and then it popped up on Facebook. Bill has died, um, and I couldn't believe it. You know. So I met his daughter um, and she asked me, you know, they they just um, um, trying to, sorry, excuse me a second. They just uh, released the ashes, you know, on the old course. And she, she asked me, could I finish the book for him? So, uh, and Bill had written about 40,000 words. Um, and of course, I said yes. You know, and you know, I'd be honoured to do this. And so, the more I researched, the more I, I realised I was completely wrong. You know, and, and I've been relying on what somebody else had written, which is always the worst thing you can do. You know, because I remember Peter Crabtree and David Hamilton and, and Peter Lewis also go to the primary source. Don't take anything for granted. You know, question everything, and. Um, and absolutely, he's a completely different character. And there's a kindness there that I did not see anywhere that I, that written. And he was a fantastic golfer, you know. Um, and he is the reason why he was the champion golfer of Scotland. And he he was he was you know he was the first king of golf before Tom Morris. And. Uh, Sorry, bear with me a second. And he was known widely as the champion golfer of Scotland and thereby the world. He was known as, and he, and he guarded that title and didn't really take on matches if he thought there may be a chance he might lose his title. Hmm. But when he died in 59, 1859, the question was, who's the champion golfer? And that is why they created the Open Championship. And that is why you will hear uh, the secretary of the RNA or someone else from the, the championship committee saying, and the champion golfer of the year is, you know, Sandy Lyle. Um, and that all goes back to Alan Robertson. Are you thinking that might be the, is that your preliminary title for your book, the champion golfer? Yes, I think so. I just, I just, when I explain it, I, I, it's just a natural thing to say. Well, he was Alan Robertson. He was a champion golfer of Scotland. 
you know, I'm there by the world. Um, so, yeah, so I, I think so. And so there's a lot to say, you know. And Let me, I want to ask you, I'm, I'm very interested yeah. in this because, you know, one of the, the really beautiful things about your books are, in fact, their beauty. I mean, the design, the design, the production design of your books, tell us about them uh, because they are not, I mean, they're, they're very, um, I mean, they're almost cinematic in terms of the character of the book. And so tell us why you, you want, why you've sort of insisted uh, on the, that sort of a design, why the material that you're covering best is, is best demonstrated or best shown to the reader that way uh, and some of the special challenges of doing books with that kind of production design. Yeah. I, 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 with footsteps, um, there was, the, the, I wanted, I wanted it to be big because there's so many golf books where the golf history photographs are little tiny sort of postage stamps. It's like, and I'd seen a book by Andy Hall called a sense of discovery. And I think I was working for the government at that time. And the first minister of Scotland would give them out as gifts. And I thought that is beautiful. Um, so that was what I wanted with the book. But I, but I have to say, uh, the designer of the books is Chick Harper. And he is exceptional because he, he does books that are beautiful. You know, don't mean to sound overly flowery, but they are just beautiful to look at, you know, and um, uh, you can open, the, open them anywhere and you'll just go, wow, you know, so he has a real artistic eye and that, that's what I really wanted. I didn't want something that would send somebody to sleep. I want something that was, you know, although the research is new, I wanted it to be as if, you know, you you and I, Jim, are in the Dunvegan and I'm chatting to you and that's the way I write, just so, you know, it's... Um, and and if, if it if it comes hard to read or hard to say in a pub uh, when we're chatting, then it's going to be really hard to read. So I so I wanted it to be accessible, um, interesting, but really visual. Um, but I have to say that is largely thanks to Chick Harper because his layout is amazing. <clears throat> and I remember I gave him a photograph of um, James Braid. Um, and but it was found in somebody's attic and it was all stained um uh, was sort of molding and stuff and he managed to just to completely clean the image up and it looked like it looked like originally you know so i think he, he he's a wonderful wonderful designer you know um did did uh, uh did he come with your publisher or did you bring him to your publisher and tell us a little bit about your publisher and and um and also i mean if people want your books um how do they find them i mean are they available through amazon or do you have to do it some other way so um so first of all uh, chick um, and I um, had a chat in the Dunvegan and came to an agreement <clears throat> and uh, we have stuck to that agreement ever since, you know. Um, uh, so I, he, he's, he's wonderful. Um, fine golf books uh, um, are the sort of agent for the book um, um, uh, and they're wonderful as well, you know. So... Um, uh, and if, they want, if people want to find the books, they're on uh, findgolfbooks.com. Um, uh, so, yeah, so I have an unusual setup um, in how I, my books are done um, in that, you know, I, I, I write everything, you know, and then I do my photo research and supply all the photographs. Um, uh, and, then, and then Chick sets it out, you know, and then then find golf books, sell them for us. So uh, it, it is, it is a, a, a lovely setup. Um, and Chick, Chick is just, just amazing. He really is. They're, they're extremely, I, I can't think of a book of any book design in any genre, whether it's golf or any other 
type that are more beautiful than the books that you've done. I mean, they're just really spectacular. Um, I wanted to bring one thing up that in terms of history, you mentioned St. Andrews being not only the home of golf, but the home of golf research, thanks to the RNA and to the university. Uh, and I wanted to bring this up. This is again, kind of a, I have a selfish motive for it, but for a number of years, going back into the seventies, and I think lasting into the early nineties, the University of St. Andrews sponsored every four years what they called the World Scientific Congress of Golf. And it brought people in from all over the world that had anybody that had any kind of connection to this, what could be called the science of golf, whether it's agronomy or engineering or, you know, psychology or whatever. And they came from Asia, they came from America, they came from all over. And I went to a couple of them and gave presentations. And then that that program of World Scientific Congresses of Golf ended uh, sometime, I think, in the early 1990s, maybe the mid-90s. But, I mean, I miss them for one thing, but I, and I don't think they can be re necessarily re restarted. But why not? I mean, am I, maybe I'm just not on the mailing list, but why not have... <laughs> We've a, been having them for years. <laughs> <laughs> they just didn't want me back. <laughs> Awkward. <laughs> <laughs> but but why not have, given that it's the, the golf research and the golf history, there's no more important place for a golf history than St. Andrews. And you would think, why not have a kind of a semi-regular or regular historical conference where where those of us that are interested in golf history you know can come together as historians at St Andrews why not I mean that's the very best place and make the talks available to the public if they if they want you know um, has there ever been any discussion of doing something like that I mean you of course would be the star attraction and the bank, <laughs> the banquet speaker at this event but you know I think there's a number of us that would you know any you know any old reason to get to St Andrews is, you know is a nice thing so and, and you would think the university would be would want to support that sort of thing but yeah no i i love that idea um in 2012 uh, i was the the uh uh heavily involved with the st andrews golf festival and we had historians speaking and we had golf course architects speaking you know kyle phillips um, and i loved that because it was just you know um first of all it was nice to not feel that I was alone in the world <laughs> with like golf history and also my master's is in golf course architecture. So um, it was just bringing two things together, you know, right. so, and, but also there was, there was art as well, you know, like um, uh, we had some Graham Baxter's art and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. um, um, so yeah, so it was, it was a, it was a wonderful sort of three day festival with lectures and uh um, so yeah, no, I, I really like that idea. Um, it's just um, uh, my eye has stopped twitching <laughs> since the last one. I'm like Herbert Long and um, Pink Panther, you know, because because I did everything, and you know, we had an award ceremony, and we had Peter Ellis and Tony Jacklin and people involved, and I scripted that and and uh, everything. You know, well, I, I, want, I, just, I want to. I, I also have to brag a bit because at the end of yeah. the congresses, I don't know. Maybe they had this at the end of the festival. At the end of the congresses, there would be a a competition, a friendly competition between the Europeans versus the Americans versus the Australasians, and the Americans had never won the cup. One of the years I was there, we won. It was kind of a modified Stableford system. And I ended up having 51 points on the system <laughs> because I, I, I made a 110-foot putt on number nine for a two. I had a stroke on the hole, so I made a one, which I don't know how many stable for points that got me. And then on the 18th, I was down. It wasn't really the, the classic valley of the sin putt, but I was the pin was kind of frontish right, and I was kind of level. I mean, that's where I was down at the bottom of the hill. Knocked that one in for a three. And who was in the audience? Uh, you know, there's always a bunch of people up watching the, the, the that last screen. But Frank Thomas from the USGA uh, and the banquet speaker for that night, Gary Player, was there. And I knew Frank a bit from actually the first time I met him was a conference that, that John Hanna put together in Northern Ireland. So I met Frank. We went we flew in together. Uh, and so as I 
jubilantly left the 18th green after making that putt and shooting 75, an actual score, you know, and I, I think I was an eight handicap. So and having my 51 points from the Stableford, Frank Thomas brought Gary over to introduce me to him. And Gary came over and gave me a, a good strong handshake and said, what a brilliant putt that I just made. And I said to him, you should have seen the one I made on nine. <laughs> so, And that was the very first time I ever played the old course. And I've since learned that a lot of people have almost a, have a mystical experience. Uh, yeah. Maybe the first time they played this old course, some, some really unusual thing happens. And, and I certainly, it certainly happened for me, but yeah, I mean, if you ever need any help in putting, if you if you think it is a good idea to put together some sort of historical conference, I can be the Western Hemisphere representative to help <laughs> help out. I'd be glad to do, glad to do it. Before we we end this, and I hope we can talk again sometime in the near sure. future. Uh, tell us about your uh, editorship of the of the golf magazine through the through the green. What what. Uh, to tell us a little bit about how long that's been published and and how it is published and what kind of focus it has. Yeah, it's gone. It's been going for about thirty or so years, um, and it's basically a golf history magazine. Um, and you know, we have about a thousand or so um, readers. You know, we get a magazine every quarter. Um, you know, once you become a member of the Golf Collector Society, which I think is forty pounds a year, you get the magazine free. And it just is the best of the best of, of writers, you know, like Sidney Matthew and Peter Lewis and Professor Neil Miller and all these wonderful historians, golf historians, who are doing this uh, for the love of what they're studying and their passion. You know, so um, no one's um, is, is making a king's ransom. This is purely, purely for the love of, of their, their genre. Um, so it is wonderful. So every every month I'm looking at essays and new groundbreaking research. You know, um, last month, the last edition, which was in March, you know, we had David Hamilton talking about um, the origins of the game of golf and bringing up some amazing research about the, the short game of golf and the connection to Shinty. So just, just wonderful, groundbreaking stuff. Um, so yeah, so I, I I love it. I really do. You know, it just it's amazing. Every day, I'm doing you know, working on golf history. Um, this next edition coming up, it's the 200th anniversary of Tom Morris's birthday. Um, also, my birthday on the same day. Um, uh, I'll be 50. Uh, um, although I feel about 90 after this lockdown. You look 35. <laughs> God bless you. Um, <laughs> Opticians will be open soon. <laughs> so, but, um, uh, but, but, you know, I, I um, spend every day looking at history and, and so, and Tom Morris, sorry, that's what I was going to say. Tom Morris um, is 200th anniversary. So we have a fantastic uh, few articles about Tom and some new things in the research and some new photographs that people wouldn't have seen before. Um, and I think we have uh, one of, there's a photographs being unearthed of a very young Tommy Morris. Um, it's been authenticated by sort of um, professional uh, team in Edinburgh. I think they're Edinburgh, um, who, who have done all sort of facial analysis and um, and also um, have looked at the photograph and what's written on the back of the card and been able to to date it to Tommy as eleven years old. You know, so so we'll be showing that for the for the first time. Does the magazine have, uh, I assume it has a website, and if people wanted to become subscribers to your magazine, how did they do that? Yeah, at British uh, Golf Collectors. I think it's just golfcollectors.co.uk. Um, okay. But it's called the British Golf Collectors Society. But I think if you just do golfcollectors.co.uk, all the information is there. You know, and people can, can be members from anywhere across the globe. Um, it just have to share this passion, you know. And when yeah. you become a member of the Golf Collector Society, you can play in, in all their events as well, the Hickory events, um, which is fantastic. You know, I, I um Well, I want to thank you for this uh, conversation. I've really enjoyed it. And I, again, I hope we can do it again. I, I, I can, I will, I can't say anything as profound as, uh, as um, uh, Bobby Jones said after his 
visits to St. Andrews and how special the place became to him. I, I, this is just a bad paraphrase, but he said something like, if, if, I, if, if I had never had any other visit or, you know, to anywhere in the world other than my visit to St. Andrews, my life still would have been complete. Uh, I, I think I, I certainly feel the same way about it. I mean, fortunately, I've, I've been there a couple of times. I plan to come some more. But it is, I mean, people ask me my favorite golf course. I mean, I, I, I have a number of them that I can, but the old course is the place that is the most special to me. If I had just one course, you know, if I was a dying man, I only had one course I could go visit and play again, it would be the old course. And, and I, you know, we've mentioned our, our good friend, John Hanna, who is a, a good amateur historian of golf and a great golf collector himself. The first time I ever played the old course, I played it with John and John played it with with hickories because he was active in the hickory in a society for hickory hickory play and so he played it with hickories which made my first round on the on the old course especially especially interesting but then my second round on the old course which was also on john john brought out his what is big Bertha Calloway's, <laughs> which to me was like this complete inconsistency. How do you move from, because the big Bertha's were brand new back, back at that time. So how do you move from hickories to playing big Bertha's? I thought he should have been at least playing some kind of blade, you know, instead. But uh, yeah, so, yeah. you know, um, he was so critical to my introduction to British golf. I mean, both in Northern Ireland, yeah. he, he kept an apartment in St. Andrews uh, that he would come for the summer and so um, I miss him so much and and um, all of my associations with golf in the UK really connect to John John would and his wife Mavis his daughter Debbie is a very good professional player in, and teacher in yeah. Ireland and and uh, um, you know if this is just a small tribute to, to John's memory. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you remember him as fondly as I do. So, yeah, no, he, he was, he was a gentleman and you know what? That's the joy of golf. You know, it just brings people together, you know, and if you, sh you know, you have a round of golf with someone, you'll probably know them for life really, you know, Absolutely. just, just a wonderful, wonderful thing. And um, yeah, I, I miss him. I miss him terribly. He, he also was editor of through the green as well. He was editor for about three years or so. Um, uh, no, he was, he was a great man. You know, he was very supportive because, you know, there's, uh, it wasn't too many of us Northern Irish, you know, um, out there, you know. And um, so it's great you got to play the old course. And it, it is it is a place that honestly, you know, I've been here for um, 13 years now and I still get nervous on the first tee. Oh, yeah, know. absolutely. Um, well, I remember yeah. the night, how anxious I was to play the course because I knew it was coming at the very end of this Congress that I had attended. So I kept, I was, and I, I had never, ever gotten up in the morning so ready to play a round of golf. And I never left the golf course feeling more joyous and blessed than walking off the 18th at the old course. Uh, yeah. And I just hope if you ha if golfers worldwide have never been to St Andrews and never been on the old course, they need to find a way to do it. It's just uh, it's a it's a life almost a life altering experience for a lot of us golfers. I think. Yeah, it also it just shows you you do not need to be a long golf course to be challenging. No, you know it's just just wonderful, and, and it, it is it is my favorite course. You know, I I. Put that and Royal County Down side by side um, as one and two. Um, Royal County Down just looks as if, you know, I said uh, relatively recently, I said um, Royal County Down, if God designed a golf course, it's Royal County Down. You know, it's just like the, the holes just meander through the dune land and it's just so beautiful. You know? We've got to put um, that little water water hole, uh, the little little pond in the, what is it, 17th? Or what <laughs> hole is that that's got the little bit of water on it? <laughs> Uh, okay, yeah, because yeah, that's a natural links feature. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, but yeah, no, it's just wonderful. But, um, but yeah, and and St Andrews is, um, but it's, it's it's it is intimidating, you know. And um, I think I read somewhere President Bush said one of the most terrifying moments he had was standing on the first tee in St Andrews, you know, and and Eisenhower. Um, he there was a, I've seen this clipping in the, the St Andrews Citizen, and it said, 
you know, Eisenhower's coming. Uh, I think it was General Eisenhower then. And um, uh, please watch him on the 1st and the 18th, but leave him alone and let him, let him to go and play his golf. And he turned up to the first tee and there's so many crowds there. And he, he walked it. He didn't, he didn't hit a tee shot. He walked the first hole. <laughs> Just so he didn't have to <laughs> didn't hit in front of people. I have photographs of me on the tee, hitting off the tee, walking off the tee. <laughs> you know, it was an experience <laughs> I was going to remember. And, and, you know, it is, it yeah. is a scary shot, although of course it's so wide. I mean, uh, you can hit it. If you hit it left, you can, I mean, I don't think it's possible. Well, I wasn't, who was it? One of the professionals uh, almost hit it out of bounds left one time off the first tee, which is, which is yeah. not. Very Paul likely. Montgomery did that. Did he really? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah absolutely. You know, um, you have to go out of your way to do that. <laughs> well, yeah. Roger, so the, the, uh, we could go on forever. Thank you so much. Sure. This has been a great conversation absolutely. and best of luck in all of your new researches. And I hope someday Thank we can you. not only uh, shake hands and, and share more stories, but maybe walk around uh, Royal County Down or Lurgan or, you know, or the old course. It'd, it would be a real honor. Yeah, or a dram in the Dunvegan. Oh, know, yeah. That, that, would be that, good. That, that goes unsaid. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Thank you very much. And, we'll, right. and we'll, we'll, we'll talk to everybody again soon. All the best.